Hi there, Tyler Buckingham here, and I want to thank you for supporting Coastal News Today and the American Shoreline Podcast Network. As part of our effort to improve our content and expand our audience, we'd love it if you could take 10 minutes and let us know more about you and how we can bring the best possible coastal content to you in the future. I promise it's quick and easy. Just go to coastalnewstoday.com to find the survey. Thank you so much. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Coastal Conundrum Podcast. Um, As always, I want to thank the American Shoreline Podcast Network for hosting my show. And um, we've got a great show for you today. We're going to talk a little bit about water security issues along the coast, that is water quality and water quantity issues, and threats to those to the water security, including how climate change is exacerbating those threats, and what some of the policy responses might be. Many areas of the coast are already experiencing poor water quality from point and non-point source pollution. Things like runoff from urban or agricultural areas, failing septic systems, inefficient or failing wastewater treatment plants, or delivering nutrients and pathogens to coastal waters, leading to eutrophication of estuaries, harmful algal blooms, beach closures, impacts to coral reefs, fisheries, and also tourism. And climate change is and will continue to place an additional strain on the nation's water issues. Extreme rain events, increased sea level rise, and bigger water hurricanes are causing septic systems to flush additional untreated effluent into our ground and surface waters. Increased precipitation and flooding also cause inflow and infiltration of older leaky sewer lines. Additional volume overwhelms collection systems, forcing utilities to discharge raw sewage or inadequately treated water into the coastal waters, often adjacent to poorer communities. And increased droughts are likely to cause water scarcity issues. Today we'll be speaking with Florida State Representative Holly Rawshine and Terry Gibson from the American Water Security Project to discuss the Florida Clean Waterways Act and Environmental Accountability Act of 2020. Uh, This is Florida's recent response to these issues. Uh, Representative uh, Holly Rawshine is uh, a Republican member of the Florida House of Representatives representing the 120th District, which includes Monroe and Southern Miami-Dade County. Um, and she's been in that position since 2012. Uh, Representative Rawshine is one of the leaders responsible for the passage of the Florida Clean Waterways Act and Environmental Accountability Act. And she has chaired the Agriculture and Environmental Appropriations Subcommittee over the past two years. She's a native of Alaska and is an avid angler. Terry Gibson is the Government Affairs Director for the American Water Security Project, an advocacy organization consisting of scientists scientific policy and communication experts that focus on policy and funding to optimize treatment and recycling of wastewater and stormwater. Uh, The American Water Security Project is based in Florida and where they've done the bulk of their work to date, but they are now working in other states, including Texas, Georgia, South Carolina, Virginia, as well as Arkansas. Terry is an avid angler, surfer, and a great communicator about coastal issues. Uh, Before we talk to our guests, let's hear a word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at lja.com. Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants offers high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, and the skilled and respectful crews to get your project built. Make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring the dune and wetland ecology of your home or barrier island. Learn more at coastaltransplants.com. Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at dunesciencegroup.com. And be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. 
Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. So welcome, Representative uh, Rawshine, and can I call you Holly? Please do. And welcome, Terry, um, to the Coastal Conundrum Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you both on the show. Thank you, Bill. Before we dig into the recent legislation, um, can both of you please tell our listeners a bit about yourselves, uh, your backgrounds, what brought you to working on water issues in the state of Florida? And let's start with you, Holly, and then Terry. Well, thank you, Bill, so much for having both of us today on this very, very important and critical topic. And as you mentioned in my bio, I'm originally from Alaska, but my roots are in the state of Florida. I went to Florida State University, and after I graduated from there, I got a job in the beautiful Florida Keys as a legislative aide. And then about 10 years later, I had the opportunity to run for office and actually for the seat that I was an aide for. And uh, representing the Florida Keys and District 120 specifically, which includes a lot of Everglades, water quality is, is numero uno. Uh, it's tied to our, our way of life here in the Keys and, and in Southern Miami-Dade County and actually South Florida period and Florida period, if you want to, if we would really want to go so far. And, uh, you know, our economy is tied to it, our way of life. It's the way we recreate. And uh, it was just kind of a natural fit for me to, to work in this space. And uh, as you mentioned, I've, I've chaired the Agriculture and Natural Resources Appropriation Subcommittee. Uh, two years ago, uh, term prior, I, I chaired the policy committee that oversaw the, the, the public policy arena of, that, of the subject matter. So again, um, I live, I breathe, I eat this stuff and uh, couldn't be more excited than to, uh, to be on your, your podcast today. Well, great. And and thank you for that uh, little background. And and Terry, how about you? Well, Bill and Holly, five minutes before we got on this um, podcast, I got a text from one of my board members, Dr. Nicole Kirchhoff, who sells um, pinfish, a vitally important forage fish, to, to bait shops up and down the Indian River Lagoon. She was coming across the bridge at Sebastian Inlet, and there's a sewer main that has exploded. And they're putting up bacteria signs and, and everything else, keep out of the water signs. And today is the first day of really good hurricane swell that Florida's had this year. And of course, I'm a surfer. There's no more iconic place for surfing in Florida than Sebastian Inlet. And it is now closed because that sewer main that runs down the Barrier Island in Brevard is about a million years old. So I got into this years ago when I was in my late 20s. I was working for Surfer Magazine and Every time we paddled out you know, on the south side of where cruise ships come in, we'd get sick. And um, we realized that they were dumping raw sewage into, into state waters, and we worked to pass a law to prevent that. Um, we also realized that uh, the sewage outfalls in Miami-Dade, Palm Beach, and Broward counties were doing two things, killing the coral reef and blowing back partially treated effluent into, into, the, um, into the surf zone, which again causing people to get ear infections and all sorts of nasty things. And so my second foray into, into the Florida legislature was, was there where we, we got a date certain on the closure of those outfalls, or at least we hope. Um, so anyway, I got into this because I was a surfer and a diver and I was really sick of getting sick. And when I was in the water and when I was on the water fishing, I was really sick of watching the beautiful places in Florida, namely our estuaries and coral reefs and, and freshwater Everglades systems die of eutrophication or, you know, over-nutrient enrichment. And so a couple of years ago, I, I worked for consult, I've worked as a consultant for just about every major and minor um, conservation organization known, known to humanity. But a couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to take over as government affairs director for this new, relatively new organization, the American Water Security Project, and go head on at getting solid wastewater and stormwater policy and funding to fix this mess. Well, thanks for the for the background as well, and and you've sort of anticipated my my and, and answered in part my first question. Um, but are there any other aspects um, uh, in in fairly broad terms the the water quantity or quality issues that were driving the legislation that we're going to be talking about, um, and, and as well as how you both see climate change impacting these issues, and maybe. Uh, uh, Terry, let's start with you and then, and then Holly. Sure. Um, 
Well, with climate change, you get a lot more flooding from both from sea level rise and from heavier precipitation events, including superstorms like we've seen the last few years. When that happens, um, you know what we're seeing on the coast is typically the rising water table of salt water with lenses of fresh water on top of it. And it's flushing out septic tanks and it's overwhelming the master wastewater collection systems through what's called inflow and infiltration. The increased volume in those systems into those systems forces the utilities to dump it. So the number of, um, of, of um, sewage uh, discharges is just increased exponentially. And in, in most of the septic tanks in any low-lying area around the state, especially in coastal areas, are basically discharging straight into the groundwater, which mixes with the stormwater, which goes into the surface water. So um, that's how climate change is really making sewage the most dangerous and ubiquitous source of pollution and contamination around the Sunshine State. And, and Holly, uh, being on the Agricultural Committee, what are some of the ag issues that you guys were uh, looking at that were, were driving some of this legislation? Sure. Specifically with, with agriculture, uh, I think a, a big part of it was accountability and making sure, uh, not to say that the, <laughs> the agriculture community in Florida is not accountable, but they certainly are a, a big stakeholder with regards to water policy and how the state moves forward. I mean, behind tourism, agriculture is our number two industry in the state. Um, we can farm here when the rest of the nation is under a blanket of snow. I mean, we have such a diverse, uh, you know, diversity of crops here, and uh, and we love our farmers, and we obviously wanted to have them at the table when we. Uh, worked on on this language, but uh, back to a little bit of, of climate change. You know, it's it's sort of one of those big drivers, of, you know, of this conversation and and the necessity of this bill. You know, we've got a work plan for transportation, and the state of Florida knows what resources it's going to require and need to move that work plan forward. Uh, we don't have that for water in the state of Florida, and considering what a precious resource water is and how, um, you know, critical water is to the state of Florida in so many, so many ways. Uh, this, the bill that we passed this past spring is such a, an important step in the right direction. So uh, maybe Terry, uh, if I can ask you uh, or Holly, whoever wants to go first, if you can just describe for our listeners um, what the legislation does to address uh, some of these issues that you've just laid out and, and, and in fairly broad terms. Uh, so what are some of the major components of the acts and what are some of the key or innovative acts, aspects of this legislation? What the, the bill encompassed was uh, many recommendations by the Blue-Green Algae Task Force. And this is something that Governor DeSantis set up very early on in his first term as governor. He's shown to um, really be a champion of the environment, and he's made that a priority. And this is sort of just moving um, moving that issue forward. And what the bill does is it encompasses basically all of the big major issues with regards to, to water. That includes, like we've mentioned a lot, on-site uh, on sewage treatment, uh, their disposal systems, septic to sewer conversion, uh, again, wastewater, stormwater, as you mentioned earlier, agriculture and biosolids. I mean, there just really isn't anything that this bill doesn't touch with regard to water policy. So it was... Um, Again, it was a labor of love, let's see, let's say. Uh, everybody was at the table, and it was a bipartisan uh, move. And with that, I'll let Terry maybe, uh, maybe give a few more details. Sure. Just to jump back to the previous question, the, the one thing we didn't talk about was water supply in terms of climate change. And we're running out of water. It was really interesting when the governor went to Israel shortly after he was elected Israel's top water minister, I think that's who he was anyway, looked the governor in the eye and said, we live in a desert. We don't think wastewater is waste. Wastewater isn't waste. It's a resource. And so one of the things that the Clean Waterways Act does is it, it, um, it positions us to, to treat and recycle wastewater and stormwater more optimally and hopefully eventually optimally. Um, so we're not just throwing it to tide or, you know, shoving it in the ground where we can't recover it. Uh, we're running out of water. Ag and urban um, communities are competing sharply against each other for water in many areas. And this, um, the Clean Waterways Act 
was really a visionary piece of legislation. As Holly said, it encompasses agriculture, every source of pollution and you can fathom. It was, I think, a 111-page bill. It really took two legislative sessions for the legislature to get it through. Holly deserves an enormous amount of credit for her diplomacy throughout, keeping people at the table, you know, cooling tempers. Um, you know, it's one of those bills where nobody's perfectly happy with it, but it, it's going to get the job done across all sources of pollution. And as I said, it's going to make us think harder about using our water holistically, treating our water holistically. So the, in, to my mind, Holly, the most important thing y'all did was require the local governments that own utilities to create a master wastewater improvement plan to show and to show to sh- and it forces them to show their finances to show the, the, the Department of Environmental Protection that they actually have a plan. They actually have a plan and funding for repairs and upgrades, including you know septic to sewer conversions or. You know, expanding the treatment capacity of the plants for population growth, or you know, uh, redoing the 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 main uh, the sewer mains so that they, that they're impervious to to flooding, that sort of things. Because what's happened in the past is that you know these these water utilities are cash cows, and so you know they're very often the, the, that cash is diverted to other government services and often to some some pretty ridiculous things. Holly and I have a friend, Representative um, Randy Fine from Brevard, who gave one of the greatest diatribes that has ever been delivered before the committee in in in, uh, in the Florida legislature about how past county commissions in Brevard County had let their infrastructure just dissolve, just rust away the wastewater infrastructure, and use those mo- monies and other monies, other you know self-imposed taxes that were supposed to to re- restore the Indian River Lagoon and the coastal waters in the area. They'd use them for astroturf on a ball field, uh, a museum to for to memorialize um, lighthouse keepers, something like that, and get this for to build a kayak ramp 200 meters from where generally the sewage spills are the worst. So anyway, the, the these master wastewater collection plans are going to you know require the utilities to show that they have a plan and they, and, and they're going to dedicate the resources. Uh, to, to doing the necessary repairs and upgrades. And that'll also give us a sense, as Holly alluded to earlier, of really what our long-term needs are going to be in terms of funding for water infrastructure. Were there provisions that applied to specifically to on-site uh, septic um, uh, users uh, uh, in addition to, I know that part of it is is looking at, at a community and seeing which, which septics need to be um, uh, hooked up to uh, community sewer, but were there other types of uh, provisions for on-site septic? Yes, um, several. For example, if you were, um, you know, in an, in a, a, a one of the areas we call for, has a BMAP, a basin management action plan, septic tanks are more than twenty percent, or any source of pollution is more than twenty percent of the source, then they've got to go. They've got to find an alternative. Um, what else? Uh, um, you know, there's a new funding source for wastewater improvements that is, is specific um, to wastewater improvements, which is a tremendous improvement in terms of um, fairness and, and equitability in terms of getting funding from the state. Uh, you know, before it was all through member requests, and generally the most powerful people got what they wanted, and everybody else got to go home empty-handed. Although Holly tried really hard to make sure everybody got something. So there's that. Um, what am I missing, Holly? I know there's more on the septic tank things. I'm forgetting. No. Um, it, it, also, there's no new development on septic tanks past a certain density. And how about, uh, and, and I know that stormwater, you had said stormwater is a, a critical component. What types of provisions for stormwater did the bill contain or did the act contain? So we've had um, language on the books or at least in DEP's hand for the, the previous eight years that would have brought Florida's stormwater treatment standards up to um, to modern standards, and they just weren't ever implemented. And so, you know, now they're going to go back and and you know require all sorts of retrofits and filtration marshes and that sort of thing, so that the in in recapture and reuse and lots of different things that will um, turn a problem into a solution. And green infrastructure—that's a big part of this component. Kind of work, uh, work smarter, not harder. 
So is green infrastructure, is that now a priority for, for communities to look at or, or, or fund? Or how, is that, how does that work out in the, in the act? Yeah, I think um, it's, a, it's a component that sort of resonates throughout the, uh, throughout the bill. And I think that um, whether it's a local government, state government, federal government, or a, a plan, you know, we're, we're trying to really move towards that and make that part of the overall conversation, sort of like resiliency. Um, you know, we're including climate change and, and understanding that the planet is, is changing and we need to plan for that. And that's no different than, you know, implementing water infrastructure. One of the, the best um, of the green infrastructure, the types of green infrastructure projects are these stormwater treatment areas, these filtration marshes that will be used on the back end of a stormwater or wastewater processing um, system. And they create these gorgeous wetlands that do an awesome job polishing the water. And they also create excellent recreational opportunities um, there's four or five of them in the region where I live. It's some of the best bird watching in the world. There's good fishing in a couple of them. And the really big ones, they allow duck hunting, and it's some of the best duck and alligator hunting in the world. So it's a, um, again, it's a really good thing for Floridians. It's not just an, you know, an environmental regulation or, or you know, it's, it's, we're, we're beautifying, we're cleaning up and beautifying the place. Just to sort of um, check the, the stormwater box, I think folks often forget or maybe just don't know what a pollutant stormwater is. I mean, here, you know, in the Florida Keys, we suffer from uh, king tides. And if you've got a full moon and a king tide and a rain event, similar to what we just had with the Tropical Depression Sally, which is now making its way through the Gulf, uh, we had an extreme rain event. And if communities don't have it you know, have their plan or don't have their act together with regard to stormwater, especially coastal communities, it can be a real detriment to the overall, you know, nearshore water quality and, and other, you know, um, things that are sort of tied to that. Not to mention getting around uh, in your car, um, which I did see some of the video from, from Sally down in the Keys, and it was pretty, it was pretty amazing. Um, and, and Terry, I just wanted to go back to something real quick that you had talked about or, or touched on and maybe get you to talk about just a little bit more about the grant program that the Act established. Um, could you just sort of sketch it out briefly for us? Sure. Um, there's a, a grants program specifically for um, wastewater infrastructure now, including septic to sewer conversions. And, uh, and so my assumption, you know, Holly's the chair of the Appropriations Committee. This might be, be a good question for her, but you know, I sat through one um, one of her committee hearings. It was like 111 individual member requests, Holly, for some piece of water infrastructure. Or I had meetings that were three or four hours long with hundreds, hundreds of requests. And, and we had to get my, the American Water Security Project went pouring through them, knowing, be, being concerned that that, uh, that some of them, you know, wouldn't pass and other ones should, and that we weren't quite sure it was really a very um, meritorious process. And, uh, and, and Holly's uh, 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 colleague, um, uh, Chuck Clemens, Vice Chair Clemens, uh, he actually put it to me point blank in a meeting in his office. He said, well, how do, you, how do you make this fair? And my science director and I said, put it all in one pot of money and then, um, and then, you know, and then take a look at their master wastewater improvement plans and take a look at their history of spending and decide who, decide who really deserves help and who needs to go back and do a little some acts of contrition first and that sort of thing. So um, it's it's there for that. So now you know, the, assume, I'm assuming the legislature will, will appropriate money for that that um that grant program specifically. It it um it levels the playing field for smaller rural communities uh, who are you know don't have as much political clout, but have in in some ways in some places have a greater need because they're growing faster than they know how to deal with, with wastewater infrastructure problems. So I think that's besides the master um, wastewater improvement plan requirements. That's the, the second thing about the Clean Water Act that, that I'm most proud of um, of the legislature accomplishing. Great, and and so I'm ass assuming that there's some language in there or that that may call for uh, or have the sort of criteria for allocation of funding or some way to prioritize or or become a little bit more strategic about how that's handed out. Yes, Bill, and I can I can speak to that. So going back to what Terry was referring to earlier, we had sort of a budget request system. So a member, any individual legislator could file a bill on behalf of their community, whether it's for a, you know, an extension line or a pump station or you know, infrastructure update. 
And so what you would have is, is these hundreds of project requests that were very piecemeal. They didn't really apply to a regional plan. They, they were, you know, they could help out a small community, but then, then the overall big picture of things, it wasn't, didn't really move the needle, let's say. And going back to my phrase I used earlier, this is, this is sort of us moving in the direction of working smarter and not harder. And the locals have to have skin in the game. Uh, included in the criteria for eligible projects is a 50% local match. Um, you know, and there's, there's certain other requirements. Um, projects have to, um, you know, be upgraded to on, on-site uh, sewage treatment plants. Um, projects have to be, uh, you know, uh, provide, excuse me, tongue-tied. They have to provide advanced waste treatment. So they're, they're held to a higher standard. Uh, it, it really, you know, prioritizes these these projects. And I think moving forward, the legislature is going to have a list to work from. And I'm I'm really excited to see this thing play out. And as I understand it, that uh, at uh, at one point the the legislation came attached with some fairly significant amounts of money. However, I guess some of the the COVID uh, issues have have maybe derailed that a bit. But uh, you want to? Did either of you want to talk about that? Sure. Well, we uh, you know overseeing the the appropriations process on the House side in this silo, we uh, we had a historic year, if you ask me, with regard to environmental funding, uh, especially in the area of Everglades restoration. Um, again, water policy, harmful algal blooms, red tide research. Uh, but due to COVID, the governor did have to use his veto pen here and there. But uh, I would I would say that the the budget for water projects or water initiatives was um, significantly impacted. I don't, Terry, do you have any input on that? No, I was just. I mean, it was record funding for wastewater, record funding for Everglades, record uh, funding for um, for stormwater, and not just record. It was like two hundred percent increases. I mean, it was amazing. I told my my team when we walked out of there at the last day, um, you know, COVID was just entering our vocabularies, and I was like, guys, thanks to the leadership that we had, we saw this year, and we ran the table. We got record funding for Everglades, and that was our, our highest priority. And, and then, you know, it, there were some you know sober moments to follow where we better put some money away in the in the um, in the state and to call them the, um, the reserves in case you know Florida's revenue trains stop running and you know we don't have a state income tax here everything's from doc stamps and from uh, from tourism taxes so <laughs> the code wasn't very good for the sale of automobiles and homes and it sure wasn't very good for tourism so we're still waiting to see how you know these quarter quarter one quarter two and quarter three play out but you know I was talking to Holly the other day though and she said you know Terry this is this is all gonna you know be behind us soon and, and we realize that we have to make these investments and we will. So, you know, we certainly understand why the governor did what he did. Well, and just to, to follow up on that, you know, we can pour money at something, right? We can just keep pouring money on it. But if we don't have a plan to wisely spend those taxpayer resources, then, I mean, quite frankly, there's no point. So hence the impetus for this bill. And uh, again, I think this is a uh, a move in the in the right direction for Florida, and hopefully, you know, maybe there's some other states that might be struggling with this topic. And I'm hoping that Florida, you know, can be some sort of a, a model for them. And uh, you know, watching DEP start the uh, the rulemaking process will be uh, for those of us water wonks will be exciting to watch. You know, a rulemaking always is exciting, isn't it? Um... But anyways, uh, so Terry and Holly, you've outlined a very comprehensive and ambitious piece of legislation uh, and funding. Um, and I'm thinking that our listeners would really like to know kind of how you accomplish this. Uh, so to start, maybe uh, Terry, then Holly, what were what were some of the biggest challenges that uh, you had to hurdle uh, at the beginning of this of this uh, process? Well, the, the biggest challenge, we knew we had to get everybody at the table, but most of the publicity around pollution um, focuses the lens at, at ag pollution. And that's not entirely fair. It's really often not fair. You know, 80% of the um, you know, populations within the, is in the coastal zone. So, you know, there were all these 
you know, all these sewage issues we've known about for years. And so we just had to, our organization worked hard to elevate um, public understanding of, of the seriousness of, of septic tank pollution and, and sewage spills. And we did that through, you know, calling attention to problems, get, you know, generating media, writing editorials, you know, writing letters to, to, to local leaders and, and, and talking to our state legislature about those problems. But with the understanding that, you know, we basically, our organization, the American Water Security Project, has a philosophy that you should take care of your own pollution first before you point your finger at somebody else. And if everybody, you know, takes a, you know, takes a personal responsibility approach, we'll get where we need to get, especially as Holly's repeatedly pointed out, if we have a good strategic plan to do so. First and foremost, change is difficult. Change is, you know, part of life, though, and we needed a big time change in the state of Florida. Again, we we didn't we knew that there was a path, and we just hadn't found it yet. And, you know, again, I think the governor, you know, hats off to him for making this a priority. He, you know, under understands that, um, you know, water infrastructure, water planning, uh, Everglades restoration, beach nourishment. Springs, uh, you know, renourishment, all of these things are so Florida centric and our, our state and, and our economy and our way of life just depends on it. And so I know that the Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services was in on, on early discussions. Obviously, the Department of Environmental Protection or DEP, uh, we had local government sort of asking for um, for guidance. Most of the time, they don't like too much guidance from the state. But in this in this realm, um, they, they were asking for it. Um, again, we had our own uh, constituents saying, what, you know, what is the state of Florida going to be doing for this? And, and again, not only just throwing a bunch of uh, cash at it, but actually having a, a plan. Um, going back to other state agencies, you know, the Department of Health, which oversees, um, you know, the septic to sewers and, and you know, I mean, it was just so encompassing. And then, of course, then you have um, issues pop up. For example, the builders, you know, change is difficult for some folks. So the builders came to the table and the developers came to the table. And, you know, anytime you affect somebody's bottom line, you know, flags get raised and, and ears perk up. But again, um, through, a, through a bunch of efforts by leadership and wonderful legislators on both sides of the aisle, both chambers, we will. We were able to, uh, and and obviously advocacy groups like like Terry, uh, we were we were able to cross the finish line and and bring this thing to the governor's desk. And, and they did so unanimously. That's what just was absolutely mind blowing about it. And I've worked in the Florida legislature off and on, mostly on for almost twenty years, and I've never seen such great bipartisanship. I just have never had. That's that's tremendous. So. Maybe I'll, I'll direct this first to Holly. Um, from your perspective, what were the scientific, economic, um, or other arguments that got the most traction or, or were most influential in getting support for this bill? Sure. Well, the, the science is there. I mean, we've got a number of scientists and scientific organizations, whether it's the universities or nonprofits or, uh, you know, institutions, if you will, that, that have done the science. We know what we need to do. We know nutri- what sort of nutrient reduction we need. Uh, we know what's going on with the coral reef. We know what's going on with the agriculture community. And I think it was just, you know, getting getting all the minds together and a meeting of the minds, if you will, and, and getting down and actually putting pen to paper. And I, um, you know, it was just wonderful to see the, the public policy process sort of, you know, work out this way. And like Terry said, I mean, it was unanimous and rarely, you know, rarely do we see that happen in the, in the legislative process. And oftentimes we come home and we've passed a bill and nobody likes it. Right. So then you feel, you feel like you actually accomplished something because nobody got exactly what they wanted, but um, both sides were able to come in the, into the middle and, and, and get something done. But um, again, I, uh, all the communities came together, and I think that's um, that speaks to the importance and the critical nature of of water. Mm-hmm. Terry, anything to add to that? Uh, sure. You know, as Holly said, the science is settled. You know, we know pretty much you know who's at fault where and to what degree now. 
and especially on the sewage side of things, and wastewater and stormwater pollution side of things, there was a pa- there was a seminal paper by Dr. Peter Burrell, who's our our uh, science director at the American Water Security Project. He took a look at the nitrogen in harmful algae um, in the northern and central Indian River Lagoon, which is North America's most biologically diverse estuary, most species estuary, and he could tell by the species of nitrogen, et cetera, um, you know, that it came from from sewage. And there were other uh, lines of evidence. Um, you know, he's looking at sucralose content. He could he did GIS where the septic tanks are exactly. Um, there's you know, the local county, the local um, authorities take fecal coliform, re- fecal bacteria readings, and just all lined up, and it it just closed the case and. As a result, Brevard County uh, stopped spending half of their half-cent sales tax for the Indian River Lagoon on, on useless muck dredging projects and, and throwing clams and oysters out in water that's too dirty to, to, to support them. And now they're spending 91% of their money on wastewater and stormwater improvements. And you see that all the way down, for, really from New Smyrna, all the way down to, to here where I am in Stewart, every single county or city is doing something to deal with their sewage pollution issues and their stormwater pollution issues. Harbor Branch has also done a bunch of work in the area and over in Southwest Florida. Dr. Brian LaPointe's done a yeoman's job with that. Um, Dr. LaPointe and others have done a fair amount of work on the coral reef to show that, that, you know, nitrogen, I'm sorry, uh, nutrient imbalances from Sewage discharge sources are, are impacting coral tissues and perhaps spreading fecal pathogens onto the reef from humans. So we were really fortunate going into this session that we knew what we needed to do in terms of addressing how to address and w- which sources of pollution to address. And also, for example, on the Everglades restoration side of it, we knew that we knew how you know we we knew that we we know how to get the the water in the right places at the right times, for the most part, as clean as it needs to be. We just needed the money to do it, and and we got it. So anyway, it was just really. I think that one of the reasons why it was so unanimous is that science really matters, and facts matter, and the and the legislature understood this. And just to I'm been a little long winded here, but to close, I, I I spend a lot of my life explaining science to lay audiences and especially um, elected officials, and I've never seen. Um, the body of leadership, like I've, I saw in the last two sessions, grasp either grasp these concepts so quickly, or already have a strong grasp of them. Hmm. Yeah, but I was gonna I was gonna ask you, Terry. Um, you know that often you see that being able to communicate that science to decision makers is awful often kind of the the one of the big hurdles that you know it's just hard for scientists to to be able to make very clear and understandable. Uh, to non-scientists arguments. Um, so it sounds like you you and others maybe ha- have done a great job of doing that. Uh, any any specific tricks that you'd like to share? Well, uh, you know, it's how you talk about it is a big deal. Like, for example, you know, harmful algal blooms will eat uh, sewage nitrogen, ammonium in particular, in particular preferentially over just about any other source of nitrogen. That doesn't mean they can't eat a synthetic fertilizer or whatever else, but they love it. It helps them ramp up their toxins and it's it's easy for them to digest because the bugs have been working on it. So what I just said is, you know, sort of the the spiel I've been giving. And the other way we talk about it is, you know, if, if, um, if you're a poor person and you can go to the, um, uh, go to a, 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 um, a salad bar once a week, and you're only allowed to make two trips to the to the salad bar. You're not going to go to the iceberg lettuce. You're, you're going to go to the spinach, and the sewage ammonium, sewage sewage nitrogen. That's the spinach. That's the good stuff for these harmful algal blooms. And so, you know, we we talked very plainly about those things, and we were also, you know, we we fact checked things to death. We weren't fast and loose with our facts. We didn't repeat what we heard um, from somebody else. You know, we I I don't nothing leaves my desk, nothing is broadcast via social media or any form of media without Dr. Burrell and Dr. Kirchhoff and Dr. Young and all the folks that are on my board or on my staff saying, you are a hundred percent accurate here. Go forth. Mm-hmm. And, and Holly, um, from a, a legislator's perspective, um, I know that 
in my experience, economic arguments are, are often key. Was the economics of tra- having to address these issues pretty clear to legislators, or was that something that, that folks were, were driving home um, as well? Yes, and I think that was the other sort of uh, the other side of the table. You know, we had the science that we just spoke about, and then we had the economic drivers. And again, you know, water quality is tied to our entire state economy, and that's sort of like the big picture. But then understanding how expensive it is to upgrade infrastructure or replace it, or quite frankly, just put it into place where there's nothing. And the state recognized that, that we also, you know, the state needs to have skin in the game. We're we're also working with our federal partners, you know, what sort of funding resources are available, you know, from, uh, from them and, and understanding that, that, you know, this is a, a partnership between the federal government, the state government, the local governments, it's our constituency. I mean, it's, it's such a, a, an important policy area that, um, money, quite frankly, is the, is the other side of the coin. So without a doubt, in the back of our minds, you know, we're, we're looking at these big ticket items like septic to sewer conversion, uh, biosolids, you know, what's so expensive to, to deal with, the, you know, those sort of things, but something you don't really think about. And, uh, and, and you know, allowing the agencies the, the proper amount of resources that they need to implement uh, what we have handed them. So yeah, um, dollars, Absolutely. Very, very important. Bill, I would add to that that um, you know, I'm really glad that the state is reaching out to their federal partners. We certainly are as well. We've worked with, for example, Senator Rubio and Congressman Christ and Congressman Frankel and basically all the Florida delegation that, that sits on appropriations to ask them to keep plussing up the various pots of money that can improve water infrastructure. And, and they've been they've, they've done they've helped. I mean, it keeps going up. We're super hopeful that there'll be a COVID relief package, sorry, a COVID, COVID stimulus package that'll be strongly focused on water infrastructure. I mean, you know, as a fiscal conservative, I, I really don't like seeing the federal government print money and hand it out, even though people are really needy right now and I get it. But we need to put people back to work and we need to, to, to build equity in the process, build equity and equitability into our communities. And one of the best ways to do that is to put people to work building water infrastructure that's going to last another 30 to 50 years. So um, anyway, I'm just really glad to hear from Holly that, that the state is talking to the, to the federal, um, federal partners because um, it's a big job. I mean, nationwide, I mean, I can't remember what the number is, but it's like $200 billion or something like that to fix America's wastewater infrastructure alone. It's at least, at least a 35 to $40 billion job here in Florida. Well, and, and just to follow up on that point, Bill, is we actually don't know what that ticket price is. And I think that the passage of this legislation will, will help with that. Again, going referring back to my, my earlier comments that we, we have a roadmap for our transportation plan, pardon the pun, but we don't have a, a water map. We don't have a, a, a complete um vision, if you will, with the, with regards to the cost. So I, so I think as this thing sort of, you know, moves forward, uh, and by thing, I mean, the legislation, you know, gets implemented, the rulemaking process, um, you know, gets completed, and I'm sure will be ongoing. And, and the, you know, I'm termed out, but my colleagues who, who will be, uh, you know, back up there this, this fall will, will have to continue to work on this because this is something that's, that's ever changing. It's ever evolving. You throw in, you know, climate change and, and whatever else is going to come our way. Um, this is, this is a conversation that, um, by no means is over. Great. And, and let me just finish up with a last question about kind of the, how you guys got to do this. Um, and briefly, uh, from your perspective, Holly, who were some of the most critical messengers or was it constituents, local leaders, NGOs, or or what? I think it was a combination. Uh, obviously, we got pretty strong and, and stern marching orders from the governor. You know, he uh, on the campaign trail made the environment a priority. He we had heard all the you know, the, the complaints and the concerns and, and all of us were concerned over the harmful algal blooms and the releases from Lake Okeechobee and, and the fish kills. We just had a, 
a major fish kill um, near me in Biscayne Bay. Uh, so yes, it was the constituents. It was, um, you know, folks like myself, um, my, my fellow colleagues who represent areas that are so um, uniquely tied to water quality that said, you know what, this is something we need to put our heads together. We had a go at it last year, and this is this is the time to to get it done. And uh, and and we did. And so so grateful that um, this happened uh, in my last term, my last year, um, maybe not really under my watch because it was such a it was such a group effort. Uh, and and to really see people, you know, um, stand up and step forward and uh, and get it past the finish line. Great. Um, Terry and Holly, and, and maybe we'll start with Terry for this question. Uh, we all know that very few pieces of legislation are perfect. Um, is there one uh, shortcoming of the legislation uh, from your perspective that you'd like to see addressed in, in a future legislative bill? Yeah, I think the, um, you know, we did, we were successful in getting the septic tank management out of the hands of the Department of Health and over to DEP where it belongs. But the weakest part of it is that we still are allowing septic tanks to be to new development on septic tanks. And, you know, we're, we, we can't just keep digging ourselves into a hole. Um, you know, if it was up to me, I would write the law, thou shalt not rely on a septic tank, period. But we didn't get there. But we got improvements, significant improvements. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and Holly, from your perspective? Yeah, and I'm going to stay in that same vein as Terry. I am uh, obviously not a not a huge fan of septic tanks. I think in a state that's in so environmentally sensitive as Florida, they really have no place other than in areas that, quite frankly, hooking up to a central sewer system is not is not feasible. It's economically challenging, and so on and so forth. So there are areas, and right here, you know, I I we live on islands down here in the Keys. Sometimes it's not feasible to you know get a pipe wherever and, and, um, you know, and, and where, you know, little torch key or whatever. And so a package plant, you know, is necessary. But uh, again, I, I think that we could really hone in on that topic. And there, there are communities, unfortunately, and I, I certainly don't want to end on this topic. So hopefully we have a chance to wrap up on something else more positive. But uh, we have communities around our state that don't know how many septic tanks they actually have. We have homeowners that may not have a clue on what's going on, uh, you know, what happens when they flush their toilet. Where does that go? And what, you know, um, what does that mean to the water quality? And these are communities that are right on the water. And so I, I, I think we made a, an awesome move in transferring DOH, uh, you know, the, that, that sort of portion of, of policy over from DOH to DEP. And, um, and we certainly, <laughs> DEP is going to be busy. But uh, I think, like Terry said, there's room for improvement for sure. Um, so uh, let me let me just uh, touch on one thing, since my, my show deals a lot with climate change. Um, I was wondering how the legislation fits into the broader dis- kind of considerations dealing with uh, impacts of climate change. Um, for ex- instance, does the legislation specifically account for increased precipitation and runoff to manage higher, saltier water tables or... or um, greater stormwater um, runoff amounts. Um, is that built into the, to the legislation? Um, implicitly, it does in many ways. Um, primarily, it, again, it requires these master wastewater and water and infrastructure improvement plans. So everybody just about in Florida now is thinking about rising sea levels and more intense hurricanes. I've got a, quite a few friends that actually do water infrastructure construction for a living, and man, the technology they have at their fingertips is just amazing. Um, but I'm hopeful, Bill, that the rule in the rulemaking process will get you know some sort of you know framework. Like you've got to be ready for you know X inches of sea level rise over the next 30 years. Your infrastructure has to be ready for that, or you know you need to you know take a look at where your most vulnerable septic tanks are in there and prioritize the ones that are most vulnerable to sea level rise and, you know, prioritize that there. But that's, that's in the details that we're about to work out. And again, I, I'm not, I'm, it's, we're not going into a hostile rulemaking process. We're going into a friendly. And Holly, anything else to add to that? 
Yeah, and, and you know, as I was kind of reading through the the summary of the bill and just kind of refreshing in preparation for your show, there wasn't anything that was, I would say, like specifically said as this relates to climate change. But I think as we continue the overall like resiliency conversation in the state of Florida and across the nation, I think that this these sort of uh, pieces of legislation and these bills tie into that that conversation. They are a major, major component of it. Um, you know, while we, you know, maybe in rulemaking and, and so on and so forth, they'll they'll discuss how does this tie into your plan for sea level rise? Um, you know, does this, um, does the pain, you know, not that I even want to talk about the pandemic, but, you know, has that, that conversation changed, um, you know, with regard to water quality? Uh, the, you know, the Everglades restoration, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's so, you know, down in the Keys, we, uh, we have a very robust um, fishing fleet and we're we're seeing firsthand you know with the combination of of nearshore water quality uh with the coral reef being ravaged by a a terrible um, bacterial disease and then you throw in ocean acidification and and warming of the oceans um we've got it all all in place so i think again the state of florida moving forward in this in this in this direction um it, it goes without saying that climate change is, is part of the conversation. Um, a, a couple more questions and, and, um, and then we'll get to some, some more fun stuff. Um, but uh, so Terry, um, let me, let me ask you um, in, in coming from my uh, background of, of dealing with, you know, enhancing resilience of coastal communities um, there are, there are, are likely going to be areas, uh, uh, coastal areas or neighborhoods or community parcels um, that may have to think about uh, retreat um, and, uh, and maybe not in the not too distant future. Um, how do you respond to those that might say, hey, uh, this bill could make it harder to retreat from some of those areas that are highly vulnerable to flooding where retreat is needed? Um, if the state is investing significant dollars. And, and I see this as, as one of the big conundrums because I, I totally understand that there is a need to deal with sewage and to, 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 to address that and perhaps um, uh, uh, connect those areas to community sewers. Uh, at the same time, you know, that, that could uh, pose some, some issues for, you know, um, your adaption um, options in the future. How, how would you guys respond to, to that kind of question? And, and does the legislation kind of anticipate that? Well, so the, the concern is, will be and already is that, that if we, for example, there's places in, in, um, in Miami-Dade County that aren't going to be inhabitable for, for very much longer. There are, there are probably places in Holly's district that aren't. But in Miami-Dade County, there's still at least 100,000 septic tanks so why should you run, you know, millions of dollars worth of pipe down there to buy somebody 10 or 15 years? We have this conversation internally at the American Water Security Project all the time. One of our board members is Dr. Rob Young, who some of my uh, friends in the beach nourishment lobby might call Dr. Retreat. And I'm certainly one of the people that have been saying, we need to start thinking about moving back for about 20 years. But the difference is, is that septic tanks sewage, it's extremely dangerous substance. It provides superfoods for harmful algal blooms and it is chock full of pathogens that can make you very sick or even kill you. So when it comes becomes a human health crisis, that's where we're drawing the line. Mm-hmm. And, and Holly, anything to add to that? Sure. And I, I think it comes down to priorities and prioritization and making water quality one of those top priorities. And, um, you know, we heard from local governments from the Panhandle and North Florida all the way down and, you know, into Miami and, and the East Coast and the West Coast, how important this was to them, but they couldn't figure out how to pay for it. And I think that's what is so wonderful about this legislation that we passed is that, you know, everybody has skin in the game, like I mentioned earlier. Um, locals have to have a match. The state will will come in with this sort of pot of money and and um, and be the partner with the other 50% match. And I, uh, you know, 
we were in the Keys. So in Monroe County, we were under state mandate as an area of critical state concern. The state recognized that we were obviously environmentally sensitive and a gem that deserved to be uh, preserved. And we, we were mandated as a community to completely, completely sewer the island chain. We're talking about 120 miles of coral rock. We're not digging in dirt down here. We had to put in lines through coral rock. And so the, the mandate was handed down in 1998. Now, 20 years later, we are just about done in over a billion dollars. And where did we get that funding from? Well, residents had to pay in. Um, local governments had to come up for money, uh, up with money. The state government helped us out. And of course, we got federal funding as well. So if we can do it in the Keys, I think they can do it elsewhere in Florida. Um, let's see. Uh, Terry, um, I th- and I think, Holly, you touched on this a little bit, but but um, let, me, let me ask Terry first and maybe come back to you, Holly. Um, do you see, or, or are there particular aspects or approaches that were included in the Florida Clean Waterways Act and the Environmental Accountability Act that you see as transferable to other areas of the country, uh, or are they particularly Florida-specific? And, and Terry, I, I'm asking you because I know that you do work not just in Florida, but, but in some of the other areas. Sure. I mean, these, these problems are ubiquitous and the solutions are transferable. That's the good news. The, the the cardinal sin in all this is again is the um these these uh, the local um, governments that own utilities and them using the revenues and even sometimes the savings um, for other things besides repairing and improving their wastewater that needs to be discouraged one way or the other and again the Clean Waterways Act does that by making them come up with a plan and show how they're going to pay for it perhaps with a little help or a lot of help. So number one, you know, either through regulation or incentives or strong discouragement, transparency, you can't spend your revenues from your water infrastructure on other things. You just can't. We haven't talked much at all about the, uh, the, uh, the Environmental Accountability Act, but it increased fines for sewage spills or really any type of pollution. If you're over your, um, uh, uh, your turbidity standard for your dredging project, industrial waste, you name it. The, they, the legislature increased the fines, the daily fines for that by 50%. So for example, it's, it's just not really feasible for, to keep to, at, at what $15,000 a day to keep on doing business as usual, which is you know, adding growth on, on wastewater infrastructure systems that are as old as I am, which is almost 50 years old. So that's a, that, that, um, that stick hanging over your head is, is, is super important. And then the third thing is, is just, is, is the economics that Holly did a good job discussing. I mean, there's a, there's study after study after study out there that shows that investments in infrastructure, whether it's, you know, whether it's your, you know, electric lines, hardening your, your electrical grid or improving your, your water system and including improving your water quality and guaranteeing, you know, a, a clean, sustainable source of water supply, that that increases home values. And so everybody looks at it, you know, gets sticker shock when they see how expensive this stuff is. The costs of inaction are unacceptable. They're they're catastrophic. We're, we're seeing this in Biscayne Bay right now, in the Indian River Lagoon. You know, it's just toxic estuaries, dead coral reefs. Um, but the but the, the rewards for your investment are you know a, a clean, healthy, sustainable, economically prof, um, profitable community. And so, I think that you know between those three approaches, th- those three approaches can work just about anywhere um, that water can't be owned as a commodity. And that's a whole nother story. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's a whole different podcast. Um, and Holly, uh, once you've had a chance to catch your breath after this legislative session, are there other water or coastal issues that you're working on before you leave? Sure. Well, you know, obviously I'm pretty passionate about this topic and, um, and rightfully so given the area that I represent and I'm going to hopefully continue to work on specifically the, the stony uh, coral tissue loss disease. That's the, the disease that I mentioned earlier that is, is currently ravaging the coral reef track. Unfortunately, the entire Florida reef track from Martin County all the way down to the Keys and, and the Tortugas. 
and uh, raising awareness of of all the the stakeholders that are at the table right now, and and all the wonderful organizations that are really, you know, um, pouring their heart and soul into trying to figure this out. And you know, quite frankly, we need an army of scuba divers that can get down and and you know, we've got nurseries that are growing, um, baby coral, and and we need people to get you know, um, I should say boots on the ground or, or fins in the water, if you will, to, uh, to plant these things to, to save it. And it can be saved. It's not, um, it's not, irre- you know, it's, I, I don't want to say, I mean, it's pretty, uh, it's, it's not a lost cause, if you will, if we've, if we've got enough man and woman power. So that's something that I want to continue to push forward. I also want to give a shout out to our, our fishing, our commercial fishing industry and uh, and recreational fishing industry, quite frankly, um, they're they're a resilient bunch, and they've had a, a tough go at it here and there with um, you know hurricanes or natural disasters. Obviously, climate change is affecting their their industry, and then um, quite frankly, um, and more uh, timely, I guess, is this pandemic where folks haven't really been eating out. And so, um, just my hats off to them, and I hope that I have the opportunity to continue to work with that with uh, with them. Well, if you're looking for additional fins to get in the water, please give me a call. <laughs> I'd be more yeah, than me too. <laughs> I'd be more than happy to come down and jump in the water. Um, uh, and and Terry, can you uh, just tell our listeners quick what are maybe some of the other things that the American Water Security Project? Uh, what's on their agenda? What are you guys working on? Well, we're going to uh, engage in the rulemaking process for uh, the Clean Waterways Act. That that's next. Uh, and then, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty about what the next legislative session or two looks like. But we got a, a real source of optimism the other day. Um, uh, Speaker-elect Chris Sprouls uh, and, uh, and incoming Senate President Wilton Simpson co-published an, an editorial in the Tampa Times that talked about how the next two sessions were going to be are going to be devoted to resiliency. And they had a strong paragraph in there about water. So a lot of it will be focused on the next two years is making sure that those legislators have all the grassroots and grass top support, all the political cover they need to, uh, to, to advance those, those resiliency efforts. I'm so proud of those guys. Um, and then, you know, we're, we're looking in other States now too, and Texas, it's very similar issues. And, um, so, um, you know, Georgia and South Carolina as well. So, um, you know, we're, we're hoping to replicate what we're doing here, in, in, in other states while, you know, never forgetting about our roots here in Florida. Great. Um, and b- before we leave and before we just have a wrap up, um, it, can you uh, give our listeners uh, a way to um, find out more about the clean Florida Clean Waterways Act and Environmental Accountability Act? Is there a website that they could go to or, or what should they Google? They can go to the uh, Florida Senate website. So just Google Florida Senate. It'll bring up the website. You can go to uh, look up a bill and then type in um, Senate bill or SB 712. That is the, the number of the bill that actually uh, passed and you can see the the language will be right there for you. There will be a, a bill analysis and um, the uh, the fiscal impact statement and more information. And then you can see uh, the House version of the bill and the many iterations that the the language actually went through until uh, up to final passage. And uh, Terry, if uh, our listeners would like to find out more about um, <clears throat> the American Water Security Project, what is there a uh, web address that they could go to? Sure. It's um, www.awsproject.org. That's awsproject.org. And you can find a lot of information about the bills we've discussed today there through blogs and editorials that we've put published from working on a fact sheet right now. And um, we're going to try to keep people you know, abreast of what's going on in the rulemaking process through that outlet as well. Excellent. Well, um, Holly, uh, I'll start with you. Any last thoughts or takeaways that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Sure. And, and I, I, I can imagine you have listeners from all around our nation and if not the globe. 
And uh, just going back to one of your previous questions, I think that the the legislation that we passed this year is quite frankly, and, and I know I'm a little biased for the state of Florida, but is, is model legislation. And I hope that other states that might be struggling with how to move forward on water policy, you know, will look at this and say, wow, you know, Florida, while not perfect, right? No bill is perfect. But, uh, you know, while not perfect, they, they sure did um, move the needle and in a big way, in a meaningful way that will, um, you know, have an impact for generations to come. You know, I have an eight-year-old. I know um, Terry's got a young little little boy. Uh, this is something that is going to impact their lives and their their kids' lives. And if we get it right, as as right as we can, and I think it will, like I said, have a have a lasting impact. And and again, I'm so pleased and I'm so honored that we were able to, you know, I was able to go out in my years of service having. Um, having helped pass this. And um, I look forward to the tweaks and the, the continuing conversations that will hopefully come. Great. And, and Terry, the same for you. Any last thoughts? I just you know, want to thank Holly and lots of other of our friends in the legislature and the governor um, for just such a great job. And, and especially not just for the, what the Clean Waterways Act and Environmental Accountability Act should achieve in terms of water security, it was also a lesson in, in bipartisanship. Um, that was a really moving thing for me in, in a year like this one. That there was really, um, and I think you know, Representative Jacobs had a lot to do with this from Democrat from from Broward, who sadly just passed. But um, you know, it, it was really it, it it renewed my faith in in America's you know, government system of government that that people can sit down and politely disagree or sort through options. Um, or you know, different ways to solve different problems and, and not yell and scream at each other and actually come to a consensus bill that's really strong, really, really strong. So that's, um, you know, I just like to see more of that on the federal level. Uh, agreed. And, and uh, I, would, I would like to thank Holly. Um, I was going to raise that point. I, I, I thought it was tremendous that, um, that you're a Republican and not nothing not saying that, that Republicans or Democrats are, are, are the leaders on these types of things, but, but very glad to see that, that you are working across the aisle and, and others were working across the aisle um, to get this done. And, and I just, I would echo um, Terry's sentiments about that. It's really tremendous. So um, thank you all for being on the show today. And um, uh, again, thanks to the American Troyline Podcast Network for hosting us. And until the next version uh, of Coastal Conundrum, uh, adieu.